from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, October 18th. I'm Marco Werman. Uruguay's new abortion law is a result of a political compromise. We'll hear the details. Also, Colombia's peace talks officially get underway. And later, a translator who interpreted 911 calls shares some of her stories. Then I heard her whisper, he's trying to kill me. And when I heard her whisper that in Spanish, the hairs on my arms stood up because I knew this is a real emergency. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius waiting to be discovered? Find out on Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mitt Romney and Barack Obama disagreed on a lot of things during their debate on Tuesday night. One of them was contraception. In my health care bill, I said insurance companies need to provide contraceptive coverage to everybody who's insured. I just note that uh, I don't believe that bureaucrats in Washington should tell someone whether they can use contraceptives or not. Neither Romney nor Obama made any mention of abortion, though. Maybe that's because abortion is so divisive an issue in this country that the candidates just didn't want to go there. Contrast that to what's happening in Uruguay. There, abortion is front and center right now. Uruguay has just become only the second country in Latin America after Cuba to legalize abortion. A new law passed by the Uruguayan Congress will allow women to terminate a pregnancy in the first trimester. The measure is the result of a compromise between anti-abortion forces and pro-choice supporters. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez says the new law replaces one from the 1930s that required women who wanted an abortion to ask a judge for permission in a public hearing. Now, he says, a new, confidential, but still complex process will take over. What the new project says is that any woman up to 12 weeks pregnant can go to a hospital and demand to have an abortion. Then she would have to talk to her doctors and tell them about their case and in, in, in why she wants to have an abortion. Then she's going to be given five days to reflect on the fact of her decision. And if she still is sure after these five days, then the hospital has to carry out the procedure that she wants. I mean, it's pretty remarkable how detailed the abortion process has been mapped out. Tell us a bit more about this panel that uh, a pregnant woman seeking an abortion has to meet with. It's not only that the woman's going to talk to her, her standard doctor or practitioner, she also is going to have to talk to a psychologist and also to her gynecologist. So it's sort of a panel with different disciplines in medicine who will hear her case and provide her support if she needs it. And this is why the authorities, even though they're pushing the legalization of the abortion, they think that this is a crucial step of the whole process because if the woman goes to the, to the doctors and faces some kind of support, then Maybe, that's what they're hoping, the abortion will not take place. Maybe she might change her mind or she might not. 
Now, Vladimir, you sat down uh, with the president of Uruguay, Jose Mujica, just a few weeks ago, and you spoke with him about this topic. What did he tell you about his views on abortion? He had to take a step back when we, we started talking about abortion. We were talking about many other aspects in Uruguay, and we, when we put the abortion subject in front of him, he, he, you know, he took a couple of minutes of silence and, and stood there and said, well, you know, this is something really difficult for me personally because it's something that I acknowledge that divides even my own party. It's not only the Uruguayan society that's divided over abortion, but even within my own ranks, my own friends, my own colleagues in politics, they're all divided about this. Nonetheless, he thought that the support given to the woman through a, a process that it, in a way is, is designed by the state was crucial for abortions not to keep on being some sort of a back alley procedure in, in some sort of shady circumstances where many women could face even death because of this. And, and he was saying abortion is such a traumatic experience that the, the more controlled we have it through a hospital and, a, and an approved medic, the less traumatic that might be for a woman. And he wanted, in a way, he was supporting the law in the way that he thought it would give some structure to a traumatic procedure. Has Uruguay set a precedent now that uh, will be followed by other countries across Latin America? I think it's going to make many people all around South America think a bit more about this. Here in Argentina, we're just really an hour away from Uruguay, and this is a debate that's already increasing. Just recently, there was a case that was in the media of a woman who wanted to have an abortion because she had been the victim of sex traffickers. And, and the whole case went to court and then everybody knew who she was. There were demonstrations outside her house. It was all a bit messy for a, a woman who was a victim of so many things. And this led just recently in the last couple of days to a new, let's say, a new momentum for the debate. And I wouldn't be surprised if here in Argentina, the Parliament and the Congress or the Senate would start seriously debating. There are many draft bills in the legislative here in Argentina, and I wouldn't be surprised if they, they started to be debated. Let's remember that Uruguay is now becoming only the second country in Latin America after Cuba that will now freely allow women to have an abortion. Mm. And even though South America is a highly religious Roman Catholic society, there's a huge presence probably more than any other place in the world. Still, this is a, a debate that goes on in many countries in, with the same intensity from Mexico to Argentina. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez. He recently traveled to Uruguay to report on the abortion debate there. He joined us from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Now to a related story from Europe. The first private abortion clinic in Northern Ireland opened today. It's operated by the British group Marie Stopes International. While abortion is banned in neighboring Ireland, it's permitted in British Northern Ireland, though strictly controlled. As John Sepulveda reports from Belfast, the clinic's opening today reflects a cultural shift there. Barbara Kennedy and Fiona King live a couple blocks from each other in Dublin. They're good friends. Both of them are educators in their early 40s. And a couple days ago, they got together like they do every week for a glass of wine and a chat. But this week, instead of husbands or work, they talked about the abortion clinic. There is no way a building would have been built back in Dublin 20 years ago. No. Yeah. Or Belfast or anywhere on the island, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know. The clinic will only administer abortions using the pill, meaning there will still be no surgical abortions performed here. Still, Kennedy says the clinic itself would have sparked huge protests just a few years ago. The priest would have been, I would imagine, in the pulpits on the Sunday saying, you, you've got to go against this, and people would have listened. But it's no longer, yeah, it's, you no longer go for your moral guidance anymore. to the church. 
you know, so I think, yeah, we're not as influenced by it. No, and influence. we're not as influenced. The women say that Irish clergy lack moral standing after numerous scandals in Catholic and Protestant churches over the years. And many Irish pastors and priests acknowledge that religious influence on the island is waning. Take Trevor Brock, pastor of the Great Victoria Street Baptist Church, located just two blocks away from where the abortion clinic opened in Belfast. Brock describes Irish Baptists as ideological cousins to the conservative Southern Baptist Convention in the United States. In other words, he's fiercely opposed to abortion. Yet he has no plans to talk about the new clinic at this Sunday's services. To be honest, I've probably not mentioned it at all. Um, I think that individuals have talked to me about it. So I think to make big blanket statements, I just don't see the value of that. And I can tell you today, we will not stop in this battle to ensure that our unborn children are protected. Protesters held a prayer vigil as the Belfast Clinic's doors opened. Anti-abortion groups took out full-page ads in newspapers, urging officials to shut the clinic down, citing concern for unborn children. But Brock says public protests just shame people already in crisis. It doesn't show much compassion to people who need compassion on the ground. And we'd rather work through the issues and think our way through them and talk to folks face-to-face than enter kind of confrontational battleground scene. Opponents of the clinic fear this is just the beginning of more liberal abortion laws and attitudes that will lead to a breakdown of the family. They're lobbying officials to ensure the clinic complies with existing regulations, the biggest being that the clinic can only administer the abortion pill until two months after conception. Northern Ireland Health Minister Edwin Poots reassured skeptics the clinic would comply with abortion laws, just as dentists comply with medical regulations. So why would you have regulation for the extraction of a tooth, but you wouldn't have regulation for the extraction of a baby? Yet, Poots refused to meet with conservatives lobbying for the government to halt the clinic's opening. Goretti Horgan says even socially conservative politicians like Poots have accepted a cultural change in Irish society. The pro-abortion activist says abortions are increasingly a part of life. So obviously in that situation, women are going to have unwanted pregnancies, and people are beginning to understand that that means that sometimes they will need to have abortions. Horgan says the biggest change can be seen in the protest. She notes that just 15 years ago, an organization helping Irish women obtain abortions in the UK was firebombed. As the first Irish abortion clinic opened today, the only flames came from candles lit by protesters praying across the street. For The World, I'm John Sepulveda in Belfast. Decades of conflict and now a historic peace process that aims to stop the violence. That sentence could have described Northern Ireland a few years ago, but the peace process that was officially launched today was Colombia's. Government officials from the South American nation and representatives of Colombia's FARC rebels met for hours in Oslo, Norway. Afterwards, both sides held a press conference to announce the next round of talks. Reporter John Otis watched the pressers from Colombia's capital, Bogota. John, I got to say, I'm kind of surprised the FARC still has enough juice to even push for peace talks. They certainly do have enough juice, Marco. The FARC still has 8,000 fighters in the jungles and mountains of Colombia. And that's a lot of people in arms. It's something the government uh, has not been able to control totally. The government is a lot stronger. The armed forces are a lot stronger today than they were 10 years ago, but they haven't been able to completely eliminate the FARC. So for the government, they they really would like to reach a peace accord with these guerrillas. So what did the two sides discuss today in Oslo? Today was more of a ceremony than anything else. They, They gave a press conference 
saying we're going to start negotiations in Havana, Cuba uh, later on this month. And they also wanted to point out that they're not going to be speaking to the press all that much because they're worried about constant press leaks and press conferences and this sort of thing could really sort of hurt the peace process. Now, apparently there's a pretty strict framework for these negotiations. Uh, Five main points of the Colombian government and the FARC will be discussing. What are they? The FARC's insertion into legal politics, the end of the conflict, land reform, the rights of victims who've been hurt by the war, and also coming to some kind of an agreement to end the illegal drug trade, which finances uh, the FARC's war machine. So uh, what does each side want, and are they likely to get it? The government wants the FARC to put down their arms and join the legal political process, and that's something that, that the government has a much greater chance to achieve this time around than in past peace processes, Marco, and that's because the Colombian military's had a big offensive over the past decade, and they've reduced the FARC numbers by about half So there's a much better possibility that the FARC might be willing to lay down their arms this time because now the FARC realizes that they're losing the war. The FARC is getting older, too. These guys who were at the press conference today, they're in their 50s. They've got gray hair. They've been out fighting for decades and decades. They're a lot weaker than they were. That's why they seem more willing to cut a deal this time around than compared to past peace processes. Presumably with any peace treaty, the Colombian government is going to insist on uh, any hostages still remaining with the FARC getting unconditionally released. What, what is going to happen to the hostages? The FARC claims that they have no more hostages, and the government has agreed to sort of overlook this issue for the moment uh, for the greater good of trying to reach a peace accord. But of course, uh, advocates for the hostages claim that the FARC is still holding scores and scores of hostages out there in the jungle, and they're demanding that the FARC uh, respond for what they've done. Does a FARC know something that the rest of us don't? Maybe those hostages are no longer alive. That's a very good possibility, Marco. John Otis speaking with us from Bogota. Thank you so much, John. Thanks a lot, Marco. Still ahead on the program, a Turkish pianist goes on Twitter and then goes on trial. We'll hear what he tweeted on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Listen to this. It's an emergency call, one that actually took place recently. What's happening here is that a guy is calling 911 because his wife is about to give birth and wants an ambulance to take her to the hospital. But he can barely speak English and he can't understand the questions the dispatcher is asking him. So the dispatcher, she conferences in a Spanish-speaking interpreter. I have a male on the line. I believe he's saying his problem with his wife that she's pregnant. You know what the exact problem is. More details emerge. It's clear the woman is in labor. She has to give birth at home. Okay. You just need to reassure her they are on their way. They will be there shortly. In due course, help arrives. Medics show up at the home. The interpreter stays on the phone because she's still needed. The medics don't speak Spanish. Here's one of them talking to the interpreter. Okay, can you tell her to push, please? Señora, necesito que Vamos a tener el parto ahí. Necesito que puje. Okay. 
Uy, señora. Okay. We now, you know the time, and we now have two cases. The baby has been born. Okay, thank you. Wow. The world's language editor, Patrick Cox, joins me now. And Patrick, that kind of situation and conversation, how common is it? You know, it's becoming much more common. There's a whole industry, in fact, built up around telephone interpreting, and it's growing pretty quickly. The interpreter on that particular call worked for a company called Language Line Services, which is one of many in the field. And every year, the diversity of needs for interpretation calls, it gets greater. Yeah, what kind of needs? Well, you have, obviously, international diplomacy. We all know about that. But more common is the everyday interpretation that takes place in doctors' offices and police stations, even in restaurants for people who don't speak English who want to book a table. Mm. It's not just down here on Earth, either. There's all that interpreting that needs to be done for those people up on the International Space Station. Of course. They don't always speak each other's languages. And I learned a lot of this from a woman called Natalie Kelly. She's a certified court interpreter, and she's also done a lot of phone interpreting for 911 services. And give a listen to this. It's it's her telling the story of her most memorable 911 call. And I think it, it gives you a sense of the really unique role that interpreters play in these kinds of conversations and the rules that they have to abide by. So here's Natalie Kelly. Well, in this particular case, it was an evening, and a lot of the 911 calls do come in at night. And the dispatcher said, find out what's wrong. So I asked the question, and the person on the other line was actually whispering. At first, I hadn't even heard any response, so I thought maybe it was a child playing with the phone or something like that. But then I heard her whisper, he's trying to kill me. And when I heard her whisper that in Spanish, the hairs on my arms stood up because I knew this is a real emergency. She was asked by the dispatcher through me as the interpreter, where is he? And the Spanish speaker said, he is in the house. And the dispatcher asked, does he have a weapon? And she said, yes, he has a gun. And as the interpreter, you'd like to jump in and say, ma'am, we're sending help. We're doing, you know, you want to say all these things to reassure her, but you can't. You can only really interpret what the dispatcher says. I was dying for the dispatcher to say, help is on the way. She was actually, I, I learned this in the course of interpreting the call, she was actually hiding under the bed. And I could see her between the floor and the box springs, hiding under the bed, whispering to me, telling me there's a man in the house trying to kill me with a gun. And he got to the door, and I knew this because she, at first she said, he's in the hallway, and again, whispering, and then he's at the door, and then we heard silence. She basically disconnected, and once we heard that she was disconnected, the dispatcher just said, you can disconnect now, interpreter, and so I was left to hang up and wonder what is going to happen. And I I, I remember after this call trying to look online and trying to find out some way that I could learn more, but I knew also as an interpreter I'm not supposed to step beyond that barrier. So even if I had seen, you know, the number to call that dispatcher, there's no way I could actually have initiated a call because I would have been stepping over a boundary of confidentiality. But I did watch the news for the next few days to see if anything came out, and I never saw anything. I never found out what happened to her. And it's such a strange thing to be one moment her lifeline and so close to her, you know, being I I was the person there with her under the bed. That's how I feel. Then just to be disconnected, and that's it. It's something that interpreters go through all the time. 
I just felt the hairs on my neck stand up. So from all of these experiences that Natalie has gone through, uh, she's come out with a book uh, talking about this whole translation industry. That's right. Yeah, she throws in quite a few of her own experiences and many of other people. It's broadly about the growing translation industry in America and how difficult it often is to actually translate the more technical and obscure language that tend to be in most of the jobs that these translators and interpreters have. I mean, she did talk about one job that she had where she had to translate a hair dye catalog. <laughs> she had to come up with different shades of color, totally impossible, like 20 different shades of auburn were listed in English. The, you know, things like sunny auburn, glowing auburn, and, and she had to come up with words in Spanish for all of these, and she said it was just almost impossible. Uh, there's more of your conversation, Patrick, with Natalie Kelly in your latest World in Words podcast. There is, including her story of a Cupid call that she had to make between an English speaker and a Spanish speaker who didn't speak each other's languages. Mm. You can find the World in Words podcast and more translation tales at theworld.org. Patrick, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. And now another language story we came across this week. Mitt Romney's binders full of women isn't the only political meme making waves online. Belgium's got a homegrown one. The world's Clark Boyd recently returned from a two-year reporting stint in Brussels. All right, some background. Belgium is a complicated place, linguistically and politically. The northern part of the country, called Flanders, is where most of the Dutch speakers live. The southern part, Wallonia, is home to mostly French speakers. And the two regions, well, they don't always see eye to eye when it comes to politics. In recent years, Flemish nationalist parties have polled well. And the most well-known Flemish nationalist politician is Bart de Weaver. Recently, de Weaver ran for mayor of the Flemish city of Antwerp, and he won handily. But as he tried to give his victory speech at campaign headquarters, the DJ wouldn't shut the music off and let him talk. That's De Weaver, in exasperation, saying in Antwerp dialect, Zet die Plat off, literally, take the plate off. Plat, in this case, being the old school word for record, you know, vinyl. De Weaver went on, repeatedly asking for the plot to be taken off. He also got a bit sweary and even called the person running the music an idiot. De Weaver then gave a rousing victory speech in perfect Dutch, but for that one moment, he seemed real, using his local Antwerp dialect and fully embracing his popular background, as a Belgian buddy of mine said. And so Belgians from north and south zeroed in on Zet de Platoff, and an internet meme was born, starting with a remix based on the track that De Weaver was trying to quiet. Other DJs have picked up on it as well. It's also gotten remixed into that famous British slogan. Yep, today I saw Keep Calm and Zet the Plot Off. Sound advice. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. There's my earworm for the day. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a famous Turkish pianist goes on trial for his tweets. This kind of prosecution seems to happen more frequently to people who criticize the current government, especially people who are well-known internationally, like Fazıl Say. They seem to be singled out by prosecutors. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. World-renowned Turkish pianist Fazil Sayi is used to the spotlight. He regularly performs with the likes of the New York Philharmonic and the Berlin Symphony Orchestra, but it was a different sort of spotlight that shone on Fazil Sayi today. The pianist appeared in an Istanbul court charged with insulting Islam and inciting public hatred on Twitter. Sayi told the court he rejects the charges against him. His trial was adjourned until February. Zainab Tufekshi is a visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy. She also happens to be Turkish. Tufekshi says the tweets in question didn't seem that offensive to her. One of them was in response to a muezzin who reads the call to prayer, which Fazl Sai thought ended early. And he said, why only 22 seconds? What's your hurry? Are you in a hurry to go meet your lover? Are you in a hurry to go to a raka table? Raka is a strong alcohol. Strong alcoholic drink. So that was one that got him in trouble. Another one, he paraphrased well-known verse by Amar Hayam, which he said, you say that there is wine flowing in rivers in heaven, so it's heaven of bar, and that there will be women for the believers, and are you saying that heaven is a brothel? And those got him in a lot of trouble. So uh, Hayam is a well-known poet, of course, uh, but tell me that, that first tweet, uh, what's your hurry? Is it a lover? Is it, is it alcohol? Is it that part of it that so upset the, the critics? I don't think so, because the Turkish social media space, and in fact, even just Turkish you know, public space in general, there is a lot of either criticism of religion or people who are not believers. So I don't really find that particularly out of step with what you could find. I think he wouldn't have gotten in this much trouble if he had not also been a prominent and biting critic of the government. And right. I was just about to ask you about that. So is that what's really going on here? Well, that would be my read of it, because coming down with a, the prosecution request for a, a jail term for about a year and a half, that seems quite extreme. And I don't think that would happen if, as I said, he had not been a prominent critic of the government. And not just a prominent critic, but a prominent musician who's toured all over the world and played with some of the, the world's best symphonies. Um, interestingly enough, Zainab, there was a case that made headlines back in 2001 of a U.S. citizen, a Muslim Sufi preacher who was jailed for criticizing the then secular government of Turkey. So you could see this as a 360 degree turn or really nothing has changed. What do you see it as? It is actually quite disappointing because it used to be that people who argued for more religion in public spaces or who argued against secularism would be threatened with court orders and would be put in jail sometimes even. And in fact, our current prime minister has been prime minister for just about 10 years now and who's the most powerful man in Turkey. He himself spent four months in jail for reading a poem and paraphrasing a little bit. Recep so Tayyip Erdogan. He spent four months in jail out of a 10-month sentence 
for reading a poem by a very prominent Turkish poet, in fact, which said that religion is our army, that religion is our weapons, and we will beat whatever it is you consider evil. Now, the poem was clearly a metaphor. It was not the sort of, you know, we are going to go do something violent. It was saying that armed with religion, we will overcome. And he got a 10-month jail sentence, and he did, you know, serve the sentence. So it's unfortunate that instead of learning from their own experience as dissidents and people who went to jail for free speech, the government is now not using, you know, its power to enact real fundamental free speech laws in Turkey that would protect critics. So I, I remember a few years ago, Turkish writer Orhan Pamuk was uh, tried for insulting Turkishness, I think. Um, right. And I'm just wondering, is this what happens in a, in a moderate Muslim state like Turkey? Free speech can be challenged on religious and kind of nationalistic grounds as well. It is quite unfortunate. And as many people said, the biggest insult to Turkishness is that there was a trial like that. Hmm. And this kind of prosecution seems to happen more frequently to people who criticize the current government and people who become prominent, especially people who are well-known internationally, like Orhan Pamuk was and Fazıl Say is. And the government's defense is, well, it's just the judicial system and we don't have oversight over it. Well, then that's a great challenge. They're in a great place to change the laws and they're choosing not to do that at the moment. So that to me is a worrisome moment, especially as a lot of emerging Muslim democracies are looking for models of how to move forward in the 21st century free speech environment. And it's unfortunate to see that its Turkish government is not taking steps to legally and judicially protect free speech. Zainab Tufekci with Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. Same here. Thank you. By the way, I also asked Zainab Tufekci about another case involving freedom of speech and Twitter. This one is in Germany, where Twitter has blocked an account belonging to a neo-Nazi group at the request of a local court. You can hear our discussion of that case at theworld.org. Now we shift our global position, heading to Kenya's Rift Valley for a geo-quiz. The lake we're looking for is not Kenya's biggest, but it is one of the most important, economically speaking. The area around the lake supports farmers and a huge cut flower industry. The lake borders two national parks, and it's just 50 miles northwest of Nairobi, so it's a big draw for tourists. Best of all, it's home to a cool mix of wildlife, including hippopotamuses, or is it hippopotami? Yes, that is a hippo or hippos. So name this lake that was featured in the movie Out of Africa. We'll be back with the answer in a few minutes. Our next story is one we've heard before. Two U.S. servicemen allegedly raped a young woman on the island of Okinawa earlier this week. The incident has ignited a storm of protests across Japan, and in Tokyo, the American ambassador was summoned by Japan's foreign ministry yesterday for a diplomatic dressing down. Ayako Mie is covering the story for the Japan Times. What happened is like two U.S. servicemen 
base in Fort Worth, Texas, were visiting Cadenabes for a couple of days. And then they got drunk and they stopped this woman, but she ignored them. So they just like, you know, took her to the uh, parking lot and they raped them. How have the community and the Japanese government responded? Well, the community is pretty angry. I mean, they protested in front of the base and, and also the government has lodged the protest with the U.S. embassy. Tell me something, Ayako, what is it about Okinawa and U.S. servicemen? I feel like I don't hear these kinds of episodes from uh, other U.S. bases around the world. Well, I think Okinawan people feel the U.S. military servicemen think Okinawa as an inferior people. So that's why they can do anything. Why, I don't why would know they why. think that, though? Because there are so many similar cases happening. I mean, since the reversion, there are 5,000 criminal conduct by the U.S. service members in Japan. 5,000? Right. And 600 are felony, like rape or murders and stuff like that. But that's only the cases that are reported. Many goes unreported. I mean, 5,000 is still a very big number, even for 40 years, it seems to me. Right. Now, the anger over this rape coincides with growing concern over deployment of a new type of aircraft with the Marines there in Okinawa. It's called the Osprey. What is that concern about? Well, this year, the Osprey suffered two um, very severe accidents, one in Morocco and Florida. And then the Okinawans are very, very concerned about the safety record, even though the United States is safe, says it's safe. I mean, I think still, you know, for Okinawans, it's being worrisome because the Osprey is going to fly over the densely populated area. So aerial hardware and uh, a, a new charge of rape. I mean, it seems to be reaching some kind of uh, crisis point, it feels like. It, it, what does it feel like there? Well, as the Okinawan governor put it, this is like insane. And it could not come at the worst time. So Okinawans what... are very angry. And then I don't think they will... Never forget U.S. military for this. So, Ayako, final question and help me understand this. Why are these bases there in Okinawa in the first place? And why are the Japanese willing to keep them? Well, you know, um, with, with the rise of China, I think for Japan and the United States, it's really important to keep the Okinawa base there because of the proximity to East, uh, East China Sea and all that kind of stuff. Um at the same time, we have to remember that Okinawan sentiment is not monolithic either. Mm. I mean, Okinawa suffers from the highest unemployment rate across Japan, and the U.S. forces provide lots of jobs. Yeah, so it... people have a very ambivalent feeling. They want to, in a way, they want to keep the U.S. military because that provides jobs. But on the other hand, if something like this really heinous crime happens, they just want the U.S. military to go away. Yeah, it certainly puts uh, Okinawa in a difficult position. Ayako Mie in Tokyo. Thank you. Thank you. Also in Okinawa last year, the world's Sonia Narang, she covered the protests surrounding the U.S. military presence there. You can see her video from that visit at theworld.org. We're looking for one of Kenya's most important lakes for our geo-quiz today. The lake's known for its scenic beauty and wildlife. It's also part of a booming agricultural and fishing economy that's threatening the lake's delicate ecology. Here's the world's Anders Kelto with the answer. It's called Lake Naivasha, 
and sitting in a small boat on its water, it looks like an African postcard. Giraffes nibble at acacia trees on shore as flocks of birds soar by. Hippos peek above the water's surface, snorting and grunting. The Lake Naivasha area attracts thousands of local and international tourists a year to its resorts, camps, and two national parks. And in the 1980s, it attracted director Robert Redford as a location for his film, Out of Africa. All that is part of the reason Naivasha is called Kenya's most economically important lake. But recently, there's been trouble here as well, starting with its fluctuating water levels. The lake level was five meters deep. Normally used to be 12 meters. It went from 12 meters deep to five meters deep? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Emmanuel Odiambo gives boat tours on Naivasha. He says back in 2009, some areas were so shallow that he had to paddle tourists around with oars so his boat's propellers wouldn't hit the bottom. The lake's water levels have always gone up and down, but some blame the recent extremes on increasing human activity, like farming. Pollution has increased as well. Forests in the watershed have been cleared for farms, increasing soil runoff into the lake. Fertilizer has caused fish-killing algae blooms. Odiambo says that a couple of years ago, fish were dying in huge numbers. Would you like see dead fish washing up onto the shore? Yeah, even we, we collect some fish, then we go and we dig a small hole to dump all the fish in. You guys would actually yeah, collect the fish and yeah. dump them? Yeah. So yeah. that tourists wouldn't have to see dead fish? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because we think when somebody see a dead fish, maybe it'll cause a problem. Scientists say a big part of the problem with water usage and pollution comes from a single crop, flowers. You count the leaves, one, two, three, and then you cut from here. Flower cutter Peter Ojembo shows me his technique for cutting roses, which are grown in hundreds of greenhouses around Lake Naivasha. He counts down from the head and snips the stem just above the soil. Ojembo cuts 200 bundles of roses every day. Most of them are flown to markets in Europe. Yeah, the job is very hard because 200 bundles per day, then the salary is very low. Ojembo makes about $75 a month, working six days a week. But it's a decent job in this part of the world. That's why officials want to support the flower business while reducing its environmental impact. The Kenyan Wildlife Service is overseeing several programs to limit water use and cut pollution. One of these, run by the World Wildlife Fund, is a pioneering effort in which downstream farmers pay upstream farmers to keep their runoff clean. There are signs that this and other programs are working. Tour guide Emmanuel Odiambo says Naivasha looks way better than it did just a few years ago. In 2009, he was on the verge of moving his business. During that time, we are planning to take our boats uh, to Lake Victoria. Really? You guys were going to leave yeah, Naivasha? Naivasha. But then the water levels came back up? Yeah, in the same time. So nowadays, no problem with the lake. The lake looks good again, and he isn't hiding dead fish from tourists anymore. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Lake Naivasha, Kenya. We have an assignment for you. Yeah, you in your car or you at home. We want to know what the presidential election sounds like for you in languages other than English. Are you getting your coverage of the election in Spanish or talking U.S. politics in Russian at the water cooler? Send us your sounds. How? Go to theworld.org slash elections and look for the big orange record button. This is PRI.
PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA, or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius? Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In the new South Africa, as we still call it nearly 20 years since the end of apartheid, political satire is serious business. So the news that a national newspaper founded just a few years ago has terminated the contract of its first ever political cartoonist. as many people crying foul. The World's cartoon editor, Carol Hills, is with me. Carol, what's going on here? What's the story? Well, it's a young cartoonist, youngish. He's 33. He goes by the pen name Germ. His real name is Jeremy Nell. He's a fabulous cartoonist, a really interesting visual style. And he's been on contract with this newspaper, The New Age. It was founded just a couple years ago. Interestingly, it's funded by the Gupta brothers, these very influential Indian immigrants who are involved in lots of business deals. And Germ was let go. And the reason was that his cartoons are not in alignment with the mission and goals of the New Age. And he was their inaugural cartoonist, the first one they hire. He's there for a couple of years, and now he's gone. And I just tried to search his cartoons on the New Age, and it came up with zero. They've, they've, they've gotten rid of his cartoons already. Erased the whole archive. So what kind of political issues did Germ draw about for the New Age, and what specifically annoyed somebody? Well, it's sort of hard to parse out. He was tough on everybody. He's tough on the ANC. He's tough on Zuma. He's tough on the Gupta Jacob brothers. Jacob Zuma, the president. And Jacob Zuma, ANC the president. Party, the ruling party. But he's tough on unions. He's tough on a lot of things that the ANC holds dear, a lot of things that Jacob Zuma holds dear. But he's also clever and does things on Lance Armstrong or the guy who just broke the sound barrier on, you know, the iPhone, latest iPhone. He does a lot of social satire and political satire. So it's a combination of things. What does the cartoonist Germ think about all this? Well, I called him today, and he's not completely surprised. He said he's gone through a series of editors at the New Age. The paper's only a couple years old. And he worked well with several editors. The latest guy came on a month ago. Germ said he was still trying to find his feet. But he says it's sort of absurd that a paper lets go of an editorial cartoonist, a political cartoonist, for having political views. You know, he's not shocked. He has other clients, but this is his only political cartoonist gig. So he's hoping to get another one. And, Carol, what kind of relationship does this newspaper, The New Age, have with the South African president, Jacob Zuma? Well, the newspaper is owned by these three Indian brothers, the Gupta brothers. They emigrated to South Africa after the end of apartheid. They've struck huge business deals, many of them involving the government. Some of Zuma's family members have benefited from the Guptas. They have jobs with them or they're involved in investments with them. One of his wives actually works for a company owned by the Guptas. And today it was interesting, Zipiro, a cartoonist you know of, I've talked about Mm -hmm. him a lot. He's South Africa's most famous cartoonist. He did a cartoon in support of Germ today. And what's funny is that the cartoon shows applicants for the vacancy in the cartoonist post at the New Age. They're lined up. There's a sign in front of them that says, qualifications, draw well, see the glass half full, not required to think. (laughs) I love it. Good old Zapiro. And you can see a bunch of cartoons that Germ did for the New Age, including the final one he submitted about the Red Bull sponsorship of Daredevil Sky Space Jumper Felix Baumgartner, who broke the sound barrier last weekend, and that Zapiro cartoon Carol described just a moment ago. That's all at theworld.org. Carol, as always, thanks for chatting with us. Thanks, Marco. Finally today, one of the cool things about radio, 
time travel. So let's get in the time machine and go back 24 hours. There we go. And we get out at the ICA, the Institute for Contemporary Arts in Boston. Daylight is turning into twilight through the two-story high window panes at the ICA. Inside the ICA theater, four men in wheelchairs, one on crutches, and their young rhythm section are running through a tune. This is Staff Benda Bilili, a band from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We featured them on the program about three years ago when they first caught the world's attention. Let me remind you of their remarkable story. The elder core members of the band had been homeless in the Congolese capital, Kinshasa, for many years. Their encampment was just outside the city zoo. Also noteworthy, they had been stricken with polio in their youth. So they rolled around Kinshasa on a variety of wheelchairs, some motorized, some powered by hand. Then, in 2009, fame. A documentary and a studio album thrust them into the international spotlight. Staff Ben Lili is now touring the U.S. starting here in Boston. They've toured many other parts of the world already, and American audiences are in for a treat. I saw them in 2009 in Copenhagen, and at the time I wondered whether a grueling tour schedule for these older men with polio would get tiring. But band leader Ricky Likabu says that after three years, no problem. For Ricky says he doesn't think of himself as disabled. My eyes see, my body, you can see that I'm still working. In my head, it still thinks. And that's why Ricky says I can do anything anyone else in the world can do. Personally, I don't see my handicap. I only see my brain. One thing that's notable about Staff Benda Bilili is that in the ensemble there are older guys and there are younger guys. What do you learn from each other, the old and the young? Ricky is glad I asked the question because 10 years ago the group took on a homeless kid who used to hang out with them, Roger Landou. He's now 24. He was playing a homemade stringed instrument called the satongue in the street. Ricky thought... Let me put him in the band. That'll be a good thing. Maybe you can play something a little a cappella uh, together that you compose uh, together. Is that possible? The band sets up spontaneously in the green room at the ICA and plays this song called Jambula. They sing about religion and money, how people from snake oil evangelists to Muslim extremists get their money. Jambula, 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 in Congo's Lingala language, Staff Bendabilili means look beyond appearances. And that is the fascinating thing about this band. You notice their wheelchairs at first, but once the music starts, none of that matters. And that is magical to watch four men, polio victims, lose their disability, even metaphorically, in front of your eyes. This is Staff Bendabilili's first tour of the U.S. I don't have enough superlatives for these guys, so you're just going to have to see them for yourselves. They're in New York City tonight. We have more tour dates at theworld.org, along with a video of this performance of Jambula. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. 
till tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.